Anytime that we are confronted with a meaningful human experience, whether it's in person or through art, we have the opportunity to be transformed. Every artwork is a question. We have an image of somebody crying, and the question is, when do you cry, and what does it mean when you cry? Some of the work that I do with people in healthcare, in policing, and law, the museum, it's a collection of stories and conversations that have been happening throughout human history. It's a way that we have to connect with other humans who existed long before we did. That's a pretty powerful way to grow as a person. Hey you, welcome to the Art and Happiness Project, the podcast on how art can change your life. I'm Agathe Westad and in this show I speak with artists, business leaders and scientists to tell moving and inspiring stories of how art and creativity help us find meaning, improve our relationships, increase our well-being and change the world. Enjoy! This is an episode for anyone who's ever found themselves in a museum and thought, I don't get this, this has nothing to do with me. Today, I spoke to the amazing Sam Ramos from the Art Institute of Chicago, and he's well known for his very unique emotion-driven approach to talking about art. Sam's job is Director of Innovation and Creativity, and his goal is to think of new ways to make museum art relevant, useful, and transformative, because they can be. But it's also a very difficult job considering most museums still feel like sacred temples with an inviting factual explanation and a curation of artwork that's chronological at worst and theoretical at best. So I was looking hard for someone with a different, more empathetic approach to talking and teaching the public about art, somebody who's engaging with people emotionally, makes them relate even to art that seems remote at first. And Sam is all that and more. He's a talented writer, a brilliant educator, and someone profoundly empathetic, kind, and very interesting. We talked about the new ways to talk about art that don't feel like remote intellectual exercises, the need to change the museum experience to something more impactful and inclusive. And also we talked about his work using art to improve healthcare and criminal justice systems. Fascinating stuff. Let's go. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hi. I am good. Happy to be here talking to you. <laughs> so first and foremost, I, I'd like you to explain to me what Rembrandt has in common with Lil Wayne and Biggie Smalls. <laughs> uh, well, I think um, aside from their all being artists, which I think is a pretty um, important thing that they have in common, um, Rembrandt is somebody who was really a, he was really caught up in the uh, commerce of art and really interested in um, uh, selling his work, selling his art, and um, using his talent to to live off of. And I think that that's definitely something that a lot of um, certainly pop music artists and hip hop artists are aware of. And there's like a, a hustle to that that's not considered a bad thing. It's, it's something you take pride in that you're you have a talent and you have a powerful voice and you know how to live off of it. And make other people excited about it, which Rembrandt was definitely great at doing. I mean, I hadn't thought about this before either, but I think that um, like a lot of hip hop artists, uh, Lil Wayne and Biggie Smalls are, are were uh, great storytellers. Um, and uh, Rembrandt is, I think, a, an amazing storyteller. And he uses images and they use words. Um, and then also, um, you know, Rembrandt painted a lot of really powerful people. And so, he had the opportunity to essentially comment visually on power and on wealth and things like that. And uh, Lil Wayne and Biggie Smalls, you know, they did the same thing. And in their case, their subject was often themselves and their own lifestyle. 
and Rembrandt did a lot of self-portraiture as well, though most of the time when he was painting the wealthy kind of people, he was painting others, but very interested in wealth and what power looks and feels like and, and what the experience of power and success is. And those are all some, just some of the things that are off the top of my head that I think they have in common. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's this portrait at the Art Institute of Chicago, right? Right. It's a, it's not a self-portrait. It's a, what is it? You know, what the, yeah, it's an old man with a gold chain. It's, it's like a, I think with that one in particular, it's a model. So he, cause he used to use models a lot. So that person probably it's, if the painting and it's easy for people to, to just Google it, old man with a gold chain, Art Institute of Chicago, if you want to see what it looks like, but it's a, uh, and an image of a, of a man with a sort of plumed feather hat. And um, he's got a black, like fancy velvet cloak, kind of thing on and he's got a metal collar of some kind and a big gold chain yeah and there's the whole the gold chain i think is very also like a, a call out i mean not a call out because rembrandt wasn't calling out to the rap culture at the time but <laughs> there is there's this brag culture yeah bling yeah for sure yeah. it's all good baby baby oh it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight cause I rhyme tight Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade Born sinner, the opposite of a winner Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner Peace to Raw G, Brucey B, Kick it free Funk, Master Flex, Love Bug, Star Ski I'm blowing up like you thought I would Call a crib, same number, same hood It's all good uh. And if you don't know, now you know, nigga uh. So you are the Associate Director of Innovation and Creativity at the Art Institute of Chicago. You're also, and maybe first and foremost, a writer. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted you to maybe tell us a little bit about your personal background, where you come from, and how um, that had an impact on your discovery, your interest, and your entrance into the art world, and maybe the specific vision that you have of it because of it. Yeah, for sure. So um, my ethnic or cultural background is Mexican. Um, I guess I most often refer to myself as Mexican American um, because I was born in Texas, in Austin, Texas, um, in a neighborhood there called Dove Springs, which is um, a, in, the, in a part of Austin, on the east side of Austin, that is very uh, working class and traditionally very um, black and brown. Lots of Mexican people um, special, I mean like 99% Mexican, something like that in the area I grew up in. Um, so I, I grew up, you know, not realizing until much later that I was living in a white supremacist world and struggling through white supremacist institutions like formal schooling, for example. And I started to become really aware of that stuff when I was in high school or so. Um, I, I um, really hated high school, but I loved learning. So I was a kid who would get sort of mediocre grades, but then go home and spend the evening reading, you know, Dostoevsky or whatever, um, and that kind of thing. So I had a lot of skepticism about that power structure. Um, I was introduced early on to um, 
the band Rage Against the Machine, which had a huge influence on me because, mm-hmm. first of all, they were uh, they just really kicked ass as a band. But then when I started getting into their lyrics, they talk a lot about power um, and uh, the machine. And I also started reading um, writers like James Joyce or Henry Miller or Karl Marx, who were who also talked a lot about power and the system. And Henry Miller, in particular, was a novelist who um, talked a lot about writing and the power of writing um, and also about the power of writing as a subversion of the system and of power. And so that was very important to me um, as it was an entry to art. Um, when I started to think of art as a place where you can go to be free from systems of power that you don't believe in. And so I think that that was my early entry into um, wanting to be an artist, wanting to be a writer I dropped out of college uh, because I, so I could specifically, so that I could write um, and uh, just do write stories, write novels, um, and uh, make that my life, so that I wouldn't kind of be beholden to systems that I didn't believe in. Um, and that's, you know, I think of creative writing and fiction and so on as just another arm of the arts. I don't think, other than the medium, that it's any different from a Rembrandt painting or or a hip hop song or whatever. Um, they're all just different forms of exp- of creative expression, and so to me, they're all very fluid. Um, and so the writing is still the one that I return to the most. I think because I'm just the most skilled at it, and I kind of know how to how to use it the best, um, and I understand it the best. But I love to make in all sorts of different ways. Um, and then even now, as I'm thinking about the work I do today and all the work I've done since you know that time when I was in high school, it so often has been informed by my relationship to power and my need to the extent possible to be an authentic person within those systems and to empower other people to do that. So I think that spirit applies to pretty much everything I do to the extent possible. It, it also sounds like you have a... Because maybe of your background, you, you, your approach to art and the goal of art is, is quite different um, within the context of the institutionalized art world where, mm-hmm. that, you live, that you work in. So based on that, I, I wanted to um, actually play you something. Um, I won't tell you what it is. Maybe you, maybe you recognize it, maybe not. And then we can talk cool. about it. Oh, this is my friend, Mary Wilkie, Isaac Davis, and Tracy. Hello, oh, hi. hello. How hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. You too, you too. This hello. Is... <laughs> we were downstairs at the Castelli Gallery. We saw the photography exhibition. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Really? You like that? The, the photographs downstairs yes, at the Castelli Gallery? Great. Absolutely great. Mm-hmm. Did huh. you? No, I, I really felt it was very derivative. To me, it looked like it was straight out of Diane Arbus, but it had none of the wit. Really? Well, you know, well, we didn't like them as much as the, the plexiglass sculpture, that I will admit. I mean, Really? You like the plexiglass, huh? You didn't like the plexiglass sculpture either? Oh, that's interesting. The, the, it was a hell of a lot better than that, that steel cube. Did you see the steel oh, cube? Yeah, that that was <laughs> now, that was brilliant to me. Absolutely brilliant. The steel cube was yes. brilliant? It, to me, it was... It was very textural, you know what I mean? It was perfectly integrated, and it had a, a, a marvelous kind of negative capability. The rest of the stuff downstairs was bullshit. <laughs> Any idea where it's from? Is that it from Eddie Hall? 
It's Manhattan, very close. Oh, Manhattan. It's okay, Dan Keaton. Yeah. It's Dan Keaton, yeah. But uh, it's it's from Manhattan. Um, I'm playing you this because for me, it's the epitome of what everybody hates about art and sometimes the way yeah, that yeah. we associate kind of art talk and museum. You know, the, it's derivative, like the level of obnoxiousness of, of, of this exchange. It's a film, but it's not far off of what is sometimes the case and definitely what people imagine. Um, mm -hmm. So... What do you think about this and how, what's the alternative? <laughs> yeah, no, I was, <laughs> it's hard to listen to almost. I mean, it's funny, you know, because, uh, but it's because it's Woody Allen, but also it's like, yeah, it's hard to listen to because totally that's what people associate with art and with museums. Um, and also, I mean, you know, the art world and galleries and museums and the whole field has, gone out of its way to create that perception of exclusivity for a variety of reasons. Um, I think probably mostly having to do with money and tradition and, and again, power. Um, and it's unfortunate because then nobody actually gets the benefit um, in a way that matters to them or most, even people who enjoy talking about art that way um, are to me, I, this is a generalization, but To me, it feels like they're not actually enjoying it either. They're not actually connecting with the work. There's too many words in the way and, and too many assumptions and, and too much need to feel smart and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think the alternative is letting people know as often as possible that they're allowed to take ownership of what they're looking at and talk about it and engage with it in whatever way they're comfortable That means that they can think whatever they want about art and that's okay. Yeah, they can think whatever they want and that, you know, there's no such thing really as an expert, um, as an art expert. I mean, who's the expert? Even the artists, I mean, they don't always know why they did something or they don't necessarily know how to explain it or um, how it fits into the broader context or why it matters or, you know, so like even the artist is just one voice. Um, but once something kind of exists out there, separate from the artist, um, it can be accessed and understood in whatever way we please, really, um, and whatever way is meaningful and helps and helps people kind of get closer to the questions that matter in their own life. I think that's an important point. I think the the idea that this has absolutely nothing to do with me and I can't relate to it is probably the main reason why people don't connect with art or connect at an intellectual level and therefore don't get moved and changed by it. How do you, in your capacity as a, as a director of, of innovation and creativity, um, make it relatable and make it about them? Well, we try to, um, first of all, let go of preconceived notions of what an art experience is supposed to look and feel like to the extent possible. And we, in our work at least, and we try to think a lot about Um, the creative practice, the studio practice, and and how that can inform the way we do things in the museum, um, in our own work. Um, so oftentimes in the museum or in a gallery, you see a lot more freedom expressed in the artwork than you do in the space. Um, so And it doesn't really have to be that way. So we trying to make things feel authentic and honest um, and true, but, and then also um, humble. And, and that can look a lot of different ways. One of the ways that looks is is really leaning on questions and inviting audiences, participants, people other than ourselves into the experience. So like, for example, a lecture, some people love, love lectures and there are some people who are amazing lecturers 
Um, but that's just one way to learn where an expert gives you information and you don't really have too much opportunity to contribute. Um, I think that the work that we mostly do is, is, is just a different format um, where people are allowed to bring themselves to the content and to make the thing with us. Um, and we use art to do that. So um, th- it's not really about the art itself. It's about the people who are there. So I, um, the reason why I found out about you in the first place is through an article that kind of lauded how you take a very different approach personally to talking about art and talking about it on who, which groups you talk to art about and what, and, and with what purpose. So I've asked you to pick an artwork of your choice, which will, I'll put in the show notes so that people can go and see it. Um, and I'd like you to maybe describe us the artwork and try and make us relate to it in your way. Sure. So I'll go ahead and jump in. I'm not going to start with the title or any of that, um, but I will start with a brief description. This is um, a image of a woman, and she's in tears. Um, she is uh, red-eyed. Uh, she's looking down and sort of off into the distance. Um, the tears are, you know, on her cheeks, um, and she has her hands together in prayer. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the image, but uh, I think I want to start with the question, which is we have an image of somebody crying. And the question is, when do you cry? And what does it mean when you cry? So those are really two questions. But to think about the experience of crying and tears in your own life, when you cry or when people around you cry, um, how do you respond to it? How does it feel? Does it feel good? Um, does it feel meaningful? Do you find it healing? Are you troubled by the experience of crying? Whenever you see somebody else crying, do you want to approach them or do you get intimidated and want to step away because you're afraid of encroaching on their pain? Um, this particular image, I'll go ahead and give a little bit of context, is uh, it's called the Mater Dolorosa or the Sorrowing Virgin, and it's an image of the Virgin Mary after her son has been crucified. Um, you see a lot of paintings of the Virgin crying, and a lot of them she appears to be in excruciating pain and weeping uh, loudly. Um, but in this particular image, her pain looks much more muted. She's continuing to cry, and her eyes are very raw looking pink um but she her mouth is closed she looks uh, to be in a certain kind of peace even though we know she's in a deep grief so there are different ways to think about that but when does somebody cry in that way very still and perhaps even resolved to the experience to the grief And if you think about the Virgin Mary and the lore um, and the mythology around her experience, and we know that there is something eternal about her in particular and her story, that she's someone who presumably is in a kind of grief forever, what does it mean to imagine experiencing, for example, the terrible, violent loss of a son, and then to be in that grief, and then to make an image of it, so that other people can experience it and see it. And weeping and crying are a very powerful 
um, uh, visual imagery um, experience in Catholic uh, um, mythology. And the way we relate to it is very important as it has to do with our own grief. So I could say more, but I want to go ahead and, and leave it there um, as just a kind of entry point to thinking about some of this artwork, um, especially stuff that maybe we might feel we can't relate to and what it can have to do with us. Wow. Thank you, Sam. I You showed me the image, full disclosure, before the recording. And I think what I said to you was that I liked it because it's exactly the type of stuff that most people look at into a museum and just walk past by really quickly, kind of like mm -hmm. walk faster because mm -hmm. it feels it's it feels dusty, medieval, uh, unrelatable, and uh, you know, religious, uh, and mm -hmm. and people just don't relate. And this was just such a moving example of how the extent to which you can relate and be moved by art has to do with how it is approached and how it is explained to you. I want to then move on logically to talking about art as a tool for transformation, because I think what you just touched on is, is grief. So I was thinking about grief, about my own times of sadness, about what I feel like when people cry around me. And um, this is, this is self-knowledge. This is uh, introspection. This is building up your sense of identity, getting in touch to, to your emotion, thinking about your relationships and others. So you managed to do something in the, in 30 seconds. You know, you managed to make me think about all those aspects of my life. At scale, it can have a very, very big impact. So what's your idea of how art can be used to transform people? So every artwork is a question. Um, of some kind. Um, and I think maybe what I would hope is that with a painting like the one I just talked about or with any art object expression of human experience, that the person encountering it would feel confident enough and open enough to discover the question and then confront it and then either dig into it more or let it go. But I think if the artwork is strong enough, it will ask that question and people can be um, transformed by pursuing it if those questions are meaningful to them. One of the things, you know, with the painting I was just talking about in this kind of painting, Christian, you know, iconography or old European masters and like the Rembrandt, a lot of people of color like myself, you know, they walk into those parts of the museum and immediately want to get out right. because it definitely doesn't speak to them. But um, I find a lot of meaning in them whenever I try to find the humanity in them. So anytime that we're confronted with a meaningful human experience, whether it's in person or through art, we have the opportunity to be transformed. And so, you know, if people feel, first of all, welcome to engage with the artwork, and they're given the tools and the time to devote some thought to it, some reflection to it, then I think that they have more opportunity to be to learn from other people's experience. I mean, like the artwork, the museum, it's a collection of stories and conversations that have been happening throughout human history. So it's a way that we have to connect with other humans who existed long before we did. So, you know, yeah. that's a pretty powerful way to grow as a person. It is. And 
speaking of um, of transformation, I also want to talk a little bit about the specific groups that you've been working with to address some mm-hmm. questions, um, as you mentioned. And I, I want to talk about frontline healthcare providers during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, because I think if you think and associate art with um, medical staff during the pandemic, the first thing that comes to mind, again, to a lot of people is anecdotal. Like it, art is the mm-hmm. very last thing on their mind. It's the very last thing that they mm-hmm. need. Um, they're stressed. They have stuff to do. They need to provide for their family. They need to keep safe. What does art have to do with it? What does art have to do with it, Sam? Well, I, I think, uh, well, a lot of different things. Um, I think primarily art, and we ha- I haven't talked about it much this way, at least explicitly yet, but I mean, it can definitely be a space for self-care, uh, reflection, slowing down. Um, you know, in addition to being a space for practicing and trainings, um, you know, on skills, I'll go ahead. I mean, you know, some of the work that I do and that my colleagues and I do at the museum is like you mentioned directly with people in healthcare, um, and, uh, in policing and law, um, and in particular in healthcare, um, among those are frontline providers, physicians, students training to be, uh, providers of different kinds, and those are very busy people who are electing to engage with art um, because they have seen um, in our work or in other work, we are far from the only museum doing this kind of stuff. Um, they have seen um, the impact that it has on people who do what they do, which is working in hospitals and dealing with people's lives um, and dealing with people who are very vulnerable. You're reminding me of... Um, Last year, when the pandemic first hit, we had these relationships with people in healthcare, and of course, frontline providers were, you know, everybody was worrying about them and thinking about them. And you know, early 2020, and I reached out to one of our partners and asked, you know, what can we do? Is there anything I can do? And he said that um, he uh, was that that right now they were too busy just trying to survive and treat the people that were coming into their hospital and that the time would come when they they would need art in order to heal. Mm. And so, and I think that that was a very important um, truth that their first practice is to be there using their skills um, in those cases to save lives, but they also have to prioritize healing and care for themselves among other things. Um, the other thing you're making me think of is, um, a group of physicians here in the Chicago area who we work with, um, who, who they have formed their own community, um, that, uh, does creates experiences for themselves and each other using art, using music and, um, poetry to reflect together. And when the pandemic hit, they were only doing it once a month. Um, but then they started doing it twice a month. So they doubled the amount of time that they were committing to the arts and, mm. as it related to their work um, because they just found those healing moments so powerful. So just uh, some examples in some ways of thinking about it. There's also, I, I feel like I remember reading that you gave talks or at least workshops with medical professional. And I'm not sure this was during the pandemic because they wouldn't have been there in person, I suppose. But about how art can be a tool for them to look at things better and to uh, connect better with their patients. 
Well, one example, um, certainly if you're talking about, for example, a medical student and they need to practice close observation, close looking Mm. um, to be able to observe a patient, to even just look at a chart, an x-ray, whatever, art is a perfect way to practice looking um, in the same way that an art historian has to practice looking. So close observation is very important. And then observation based on what you've, what you've observed, or excuse me, interpretation based on what you've observed and being able to build a perspective, ask good questions, and also do that in a community in a collaborative way. So there's a lot of different skills that are there that are directly applicable to the work that, that they do. Um, the other thing that I think is really important as they relate to their patients is um, empathic thinking, um, mm. being able to empathize and understand that as a doctor or a physician assistant or an occupational therapist, you have a kind of expert authority um, that your client or patient does not have. And so how do you use that authority and engage with that patient in a way that's caring and responsible um, by, uh, you know, implicit bias awareness, for example, but also by just understanding what um, it means to be compassionate or to express empathy um, and all that does it. And it means a lot of different things in, in, in practical terms, but some of those th- things we practice uh, with art. How? Um, how? Like you, and, you show uh, a painting and and tell tell me how. Well, here's a. I think a really simple example is um, that I always like to start a lot of these uh, conversations by workshops with is to bring people to a particular large painting. I tend to use the same painting, but you can really do it with any painting. But um, it's a large painting. We kind of gather around it. We've done this virtually and in the museum. And asking people to share what they see. So every person takes turns saying the first thing that they see is this. And uh, after we've done that, I'd like to point out that, okay, we were looking around the, the, the painting and every time somebody saw something and they said it out loud, we all wanted to look at that thing. It's already impacting the way that we perceive this object. And in their case, you know, we make the connection to, let's say it's a patient mm. or a patient story. There's a lot of power in being able to change how somebody sees based on what you say out loud. Um, there's, there, and there can be a lot at stake if you're working in a hospital or something. And so after that, we'll, we'll talk about that piece. Um, and then we'll start to interpret. Like, let's focus on this part of the painting. What's happening in this part of the painting? What are some associations we have? What what questions do we have? And we share all those and we we pose answers and solutions and then we ask more questions. Um, And all that is collaborative. All that is about communication and being careful about the words we choose Um, and thinking about how we are bringing ourselves to the thing we're seeing. So in this case, it's a painting, but for them, they're bringing themselves to their engagement with that patient. Um, And the last thing I mentioned is that in all of that, they they really prize objectivity and being an objective kind of science-based authority, right? Um, but we can't all be easily objective. And we do another exercise where we um, dig into that. We try to describe a painting objectively, and then we realize all the ways in which we are actually not doing that very well. And it raises, mm. it it begins becomes a conversation about what it even means to be objective and what we have to do to get close to the truth and what truth even is, um, which is very important. I was going to say it's something that you also use in workshops in the criminal justice system, right? With the because here yeah. you were talking about power, and I think that's a very good place to talk about power, especially in America. 
um, and the, the discrepancy of it. Um, is that, t tell us a bit more about kind of how you worked with, who you worked with inside the criminal justice system and how you used art. Yeah, well, we've, um, we've teamed up with the Illinois courts um, a couple of times, a few times, and worked directly with um, new judges, Illinois judges, and also like probation officers and um, uh, administrators of different mm -hmm. kinds. Um, and we're starting to do more work on the sort of policing side. Um, but the objectivity thing in particular um, is really important with those groups because You know, judges in particular, they are pride themselves on neutrality and presumably to be neutral or remain neutral, you have to be objective. And so we don't want to take for granted that um, being objective um, is easy or, um, or that we even know what it is. The, the basic pract practice that we do with the objectivity is um, asking, so finding an image that uh, has a lot of kind of emotional content. I will ask them to describe it objectively, and they almost always leave out the emotional content. But whenever I ask them to just talk about what they see, the emotional content comes back in, fear or whatever, words that are about feelings. So then we have a conversation about, okay, if we all agree that there's fear in this image, why can't we say that it's just objectively true that this person or a subject is experiencing fear? And then, you know, we have to talk about, okay, maybe there's a flaw or at least a complication in the idea of objectivity, the way we understand it. And that's applicable for people in medicine. And it's also very much applicable for people in uh, the law. Is there any um, studies on, on their perspective changing after this? Or is it too small scale to, uh, to tell yet? I think right now it's too small scale. And that's something that we're thinking about all the time is, you know, how do we assess And how do we research? Right. I think one thing we're aware of is that you can't do one two-hour or three-hour workshop and assume that a person has experienced a transformational learning exactly. moment. So it's going to take sustainability over time. And that's something that I think we're really interested in doing in the future is um, what happens if we work with the same people over and over again for a period of years even. And how does that impact the way they approach their work? And we're seeing um, glimmers of that. I'm sure there are other programs around um, the country that are already doing that, that kind of thing. Um, and we're hoping to get to a place where we can have, do those kinds of studies and have those kinds of partnerships. And we're, we're building them, um, but we're not quite there yet. But that's something I have the same question. I want to know what it looks like when somebody, like, how can we measure the impact that this really has so we can keep doing it and do it even better? I want to go back a little bit to the idea of empathy. And I used a word in, I believe, an interview that was the idea of guided disorientation, which I mm -hmm. loved because I think that there's a lot about art that throws us and that can be good. I remember before I studied art history and before I actually had any interest in art because there was a, such a time, um, I came actually to the MoMA And I was put in front of a sculpture, which was literally a yellow neon. And mm -hmm. I was pissed off, actually. It made me mad. I, you know, I remember thinking, mm -hmm. you know, are they joking? Is this how t people's time should be used? Is this something that deserves a, a, a huge white room inside a museal institution so that we can go and mm -hmm. watch this absurd thing that doesn't give me any explanation? 
I was really mad. And, mm-hmm. and I think I've thought about this since a lot because it wasn't lost on me. You know, I thought about it back over time and then I thought about, you know, why did it make me mad? And, you know, is there, is, is it a good thing? Did, did, in, in the end, you know, it had a pretty strong impact on, uh, my curiosity about art and the way that I challenged my initial thoughts, et cetera. And so my question for you is, what, what is guided disorientation? Um, and how does it relate to building empathy? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I totally relate to that experience of, I mean, I've definitely had that experience where I've come across some installation or an artwork and just did not understand it. Why? For sure. <laughs> well, first of all, I would say it's okay to feel that and that maybe it wasn't worth your time and there's plenty of other stuff to look at. And I think that's cool too. But um, do you but, feel like if an if an um, institution like the MoMA is showing this to you, like it's telling you like this is important and if you don't get it, you're wrong, you know, which is awful. I know. It is. And I want to, yeah, for sure. And people should be empowered to say, no, MoMA, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and then like go look at something else. There's also, there is lots of cool stuff in the MoMA. But anyway, that question about guided orientation, yeah. um, that's that's a really great example because, uh, you know, actually the, the idea of guided orientation was um, in that, well, that phrase was shared with me by an occupational therapist who I've been collaborating with. And she you know, was talking about studies and that showed that some disorientation was necessary in order for transformational learning to happen. Um, that a person had to be able to see and feel differently and have a different kind of awareness in order to fundamentally accept new concepts and new ways of being. And then learn, you know, learn something new. And for a lot of this, you know, empathy, um, social justice, equity practice, anti-racism, and so on. I mean, those are really fundamental philosophical shifts for people. I mean, including for me. I mean, I'm a person of color who grew up with racism in different ways. And I didn't even really understand it until I was in my 20s or something. Um, And and it was hard for me. Mm. And so how do you... um, kind of do that in a way where people aren't going to shut down and the idea is a guided disorienting experience and art does that all the time and you just gave a good example um and there's so many great artists uh who i i think um you know use this orientation um as part of their practice um as a way of making people see differently i mean the art is just sort of perfectly suited to that especially contemporary art um, but even older artwork can do that to some extent, because I think the most interesting artwork, as I was saying earlier, is a question. And questions can be disorienting, um, whereas answers um, are not always, you know, um, and sometimes a, a, an artwork can be a question and also a possible answer, which is maybe is what I meant when I was talking about have, uh, being a thesis earlier. But so if artwork can be used to help people, you know, through a... Um, uh, disorienting feeling, a disorienting experience, but they're still safe because it's guided and we're there to kind of give them an infrastructure for it, then they can make some progress with us um, and they can get closer to, um, you know, being open to new ways of connecting with others, which is, you know, when you do that in a compassionate way, that's, that's empathy. Happiness. What do you think it is? I think that I can often fail uh, to see happiness um, as something other than static, like as though happiness is a condition. But I don't think ha- I, I don't think happiness has to be a condition. Mm. I think maybe it can be um, you know an experience 
um, like something that's that comes and goes, a lightness of being, and it's okay for it to come and for it to be let go. If if your conditions of your life and the circumstances of, of your life are healthy, then you set you set yourself up to be able to experience that lightness more often, and maybe you can call that a happy life. I have one last question for you. What sure. is art for in one word? The first word that comes to mind is it's just kind of surprised to me is learning. That doesn't surprise me though. Thank you so much, Sam. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. All the artworks, details and references will be in the show notes so you can look at them anytime. And if you liked this, let me know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you have just feedback or a really great idea for a next episode, send me an email or a DM somewhere on social media. I would love to hear from you. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.